Wouldn't it be nice to rank some Beatles and then we could have our own podcast and every time that we release a ranking somebody would say that I'm an ass. <laughs> oh, thank you. Did you enjoy that one? That was very good. I did not thank see you. that ending you coming. You did not see that coming that way. That was amazing. Well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 59 of Ranking the Beatles. 59, wow, that's a lot of shows. Look at us. It's impressive. Um, <laughs> it is. I'm, Go ahead and pat I'm yourself shocked. on the back. <laughs> I will. I'm lucky I didn't pull something when I just did that. That's true, yes. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, everybody. Hope you're all doing really well and having a great week. I'm your host, Jonathan, over here to my left, my beautiful co-host, my wife, my partner in everything I do, the lovely Miss Julia. Yeah. Hey, y'all. <laughs> Hi, baby. <laughs> How's your week going so far? Oh, it's all right. Yeah? Yeah. Nothing too bad? I mean, just, uh, just another week. Yeah. Did you see the news that came out today? Um, I, there's Every some, day uh, there's a lot of news. What specific some, some news? sweet... Some sweet leaky gossip. No. The Let It Be box set reissue oh. track listing has leaked. Uh-oh. A lot of uh, a lot of fraught conversation, a lot of um, unhappy campers, a lot of happy campers. Why would people be unhappy? Well, it doesn't have the rooftop sessions, mm. like the rooftop concert's not on there. It doesn't have things that have been bootlegged over the years that I think people want to hear like clean versions of. So this is a reissue? This is the box set. It's a, a remix uh, from G uh, Giles Martin. Okay. Um, two discs of studio jams. Um, the original mix by engineer Glenn Johns. Um, and people are wanting more because there's a lot more from this session. But So was the the rooftop concert included in the first box set uh a couple songs on the album are from the rooftop concert okay. but the whole concert was never issued on the original album has it been issued at all no interesting here's what i think is happening i think there's going to be a really nice soundtrack available for the get back film because mm. you can double dip Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it'll have all the songs performed in the movie, um, the rooftop concert, all that will be there for our second purchase uh, in a few months, I'm sure. Yeah. So they're going to maximize. Oh, always. Also, speaking of Giles Martin, every time I hear his name, I laugh a little because that one time on Blotto when they called Scotty a was it a George Martin, George Martin in the streets? <laughs> Giles Martin in the sheets. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I think that was it. That's the and best description. I laughed so hard. <laughs> and I was sitting on the front porch. It was when the weather was nicer. I was right. enjoying a glass of rosé on the front porch and listening to the podcast. And I started laughing out loud. And these people walking by looked at me like I had seven heads. And I was nice. like, it's all right. It's just a funny podcast. We're okay. <laughs> just a podcast. Just no big deal. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. I'm glad it reminds you of them. We hope those guys are well. There's a little hurricane up that way right now. Yeah, we should check in and make yeah. sure they're doing okay. Blottos, if you're okay, let us know. 
put up the Beatles signal. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Please cut that. Oh, I'm I'll see myself in. out. Leaving that in. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> well, friends, I'm glad you're here this week. We've got a really fun episode on tap. Let's get talking about it. Now, our guests today are a duo of authors who released uh, It's All in the Mind, Inside the Beatles, Yellow Submarine, Volume 2, their second book on the Beatles' 1968 animated classic, Yellow Submarine. Now, their first book, Inside the Yellow Submarine, was called An Indispensable Companion to the Movie by Animation World. And the authors have lectured on this uh, on this book and the film all over the world, including at Abbey Road Studios. Ooh. Now, disclaimer... They do recommend, if at all possible, that watching or rewatching the film can help you understand different elements of the conversation that we're about to have. So if you're able to, if you've never seen it or if you haven't watched it in a long time, if you can, go ahead and pause our show and then rewatch the film and come back. Alternately, you can listen to the show, rewatch the film, and then re-listen to the podcast. There's no wrong way to do it, but this is going to be a whole lot of fun. I'm a big fan of Yellow Submarine, as most all of you are, I'm sure. There's a Yellow Submarine lava lamp to my left on the desk, and a uh, there's Yellow Submarine stuff all over the house. I mean, it's, there's a ton of it. It's merchandising, merchandising. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into it. I'm really excited about this. Friends, please welcome to the show Laura Corner and Bob Hieronymus. Laura, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming to Ranking the Beatles. How are you today? Yay! We're I'm so a, good. We're we're in very good. I'm about a B plus, and by the end of the night, we're going to put it up there to about an H. An H, <laughs> honor. It's above an A. I've never heard. I mean, really, that used to be a degree, a high. The highest degree you could get was an H. Was honor. Back in the old On days. On the old days. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. Excellent. And did you get yeah. the, Did you get an H? Yes, I got an H too. Once or twice. Yeah. Yep. In good what? Student. In what subjects? Uh, it was um, what would you call it? Geometry. Oh, oh, that's a tough one. Well, yeah, but I can't do it anymore. Take <laughs> <laughs> something in geometry. <laughs> uh, uh, I can't. I can't. I feel that's like I feel like that's all of us though. Like we take those classes in high school: geometry, trigonometry, like uh, physics. <laughs> And then as soon as you graduate, you're like, I don't need that anymore. Poof, out of your brain. <laughs> Make room for something I do need to know how to do. Yep. Right. Well, it's like they used to always say, you know, in math classes, especially, you're not going to always have a calculator in your back pocket to work out this problem. <laughs> and lo and behold, I've got the best calculator of all time in my pocket. Yep. <laughs> so. Well, they're going to put you under arrest for, you know, you can't keep doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you all for coming. I'm super excited to have you all. Um, you have, you've got your second book coming out on Yellow Submarine. It's all in the mind inside the Yellow Submarine Volume 2. Uh, so I want to ask, you know, what is it that draws you so much into Yellow Submarine uh, that so much that it's inspired you to write not one but two books? What's kind of the origin story of this for you? Why don't you start it? All right. Well, the origin story is this man here, Dr. Oh, Bob Hieronymus, who in 1968 – was an art teacher in, in uh, elementary school, I yes, think, right? That's, that's what I like to teach. I was just children. a wee little baby at the time, so it wasn't anything to me. But uh, he had recently heard Sergeant Pepper. This is the way I heard the story told to me. A billion and uh, was excited to see what this new Beatles venture was all about that had art, because he was an artist himself. So uh, sitting in this darkened theater, we write about this in the book, 
he was just overwhelmed. You know, what is this, all this color coming at me and all these symbols, this must mean something. And the Beatles are much more genius than I thought they were. You know, they're great musical geniuses, but look at this, they're animators too. Oh my God. Yeah, I thought they were almost gods. <laughs> yeah, that they that had time. made the movie. I mean, yeah. that was the popular theory in the press anyway, that the Beatles have done it again. You know, mm -hmm. those are the headlines. So, wow, they've branched out into animation. They're artists as yeah. well as storytellers. And this it's this story that resonates with, that's what really touched him. The story resonates with a lot of um, the subconscious and the collective unconscious and the myths of Atlantis and the, the stories that are told on, along the Joseph Campbell hero's journey arc. You know, when you have a hero that leaves his home and then he, he goes through a series of adventures and then he learns his things that he needs to learn. He comes back and he, he shares his knowledge with his homeland. That's basically the storyline of Yellow Submarine too. You know, they, mm -hmm. they have a utopia, it's under attack and uh, old Fred flies off for help. He finds help in the form of the Beatles. They come back and when the Beatles come back, they share their, their messages with the world. So um, Bob being a, a student of the esoteric traditions saw that in the Yellow Submarine. Not the only one to read a lot more into the film than was intended. Can, can um, I interrupt just, you real quick? Can you explain the the esoteric studies? Like, wh as far, wh what does that, I guess, translate to? Like, well, uh, esoteric esoterics are basically internal aspects, not external. And in ex internal learning, it's higher consciousness, and it deals with meditation, prayer. But more important than those is service. Uh, they're really key. As a matter of fact, if you practice prayer, meditation, and service, you will gain higher consciousness. You will eventually move into an, another kind of uh, a level of meaning and knowing that you'll understand what kindness is all about and how to treat other people and how to work with other people. But most importantly in this process is serving others and looking out for others, not looking for money from them, not looking to try to take advantage of them, but we are all one people on one planet. We ain't there yet. And that's where we're headed. That's where we're pushing it. Mm -hmm. Now we may die before that happens, but that to me is what uh, this yellow submarine is really all about. One people, one planet. Yeah, we all live in a yellow submarine. That's another way of saying that we are all in this together, you know, mm -hmm. and our friends are all aboard and every one of us has all we need. There are some deeper um, truths in those very succinct phrases. That's what the Beatles are so good at, aren't they? Yep. Mm -hmm. Their poetry, you know, in just a few words says this wonderful teaching. So Bob had just founded a school, uh, the AUM Esoteric Study Center in Baltimore that still exists, but it was a thriving school by this time, mm -hmm. uh, teaching uh, metaphysics and astrology and tarot and, you know, occult sciences, all these things. And um, so whether or not they were there, that's what he saw in the film. And he pursued that for the next couple of years without the internet, of course, and- Still thinking the Beatles did it. Right, and uh, writing Paul McCartney, not getting any answers. And um, those two, they didn't answer. Yeah, and nobody, <laughs> written about the film until we did back in 2002. So it took a really long time, but when he finally did break through to who made the film um, and started one led to another, you know, we found a director of animation and he put us in touch with a whole bunch of other people. And we met the designer and 
and so on and so forth. So um, that led to the 2002 publication of how the film was made. We interviewed about 30 of the principal co-creators, the designer, the producers, the writers, you know, the people who were making the creative decisions. Um, and 426 pages later, we thought, okay, that's done. Hey, hey we're free. <laughs> we don't have to do anymore on this. <laughs> Put that away. <laughs> and wrote several other books. You know, he's been doing a radio show for the past 30 plus years. So it's a weekly grind, as you know, mm -hmm. um, reading a book every week or more and preparing questions and painting murals. He's a public mm -hmm. muralist. So um, oh, cool. there have been several murals between this. Um, you know, very busy, but we started to hear from all these other people that we missed, you know, 200 some people contributed to this film in one way or another. And we started to hear from some of the younger crew that we hadn't interviewed. And at first we thought, well, we've heard all this, you know, after a while you start hearing the same stories over and over again. But then, but then we met Cam Ford in Australia and uh, he not only has a terrific memory, but he had a camera with him in the studio. So he started sharing photos with us that we'd never seen before and telling anecdotes that we'd never heard before, more or less because they were from the, the younger, the lower tier of, of, of artists and workers. You know, they were not the ones making the decisions. They were following directions. Mm -hmm. You know, here's the storyboard. As chaotic as it was, if you know anything about the film's creation, there was really no master plan at all. They didn't even have a script right. until it was finished. They went back and wrote the script based on what they had done. <laughs> They had too many scripts. That was really their problem. They had so many and too little time to do it. So they were just grasping, you know, whatever worked. And it's just a miracle that it, it holds together as well as it does. So this, these were the people called the key animators and the trace and painters, you know, one level below them even, um, that we interviewed for this second round of, of interviews for the second book. So once we started hearing new stories, we realized that there's a whole other book here. And 2018 was coming up, the 50th anniversary. We thought, okay, we'll, we'll knock it out now. We'll do it. But then Woodstock came along. The yeah. 50th anniversary of Woodstock is the following year, 2019. And he's largely involved with Woodstock because of one of his painted Volkswagen buses. Oh, I don't know if you... Cool. Oh, yeah. I like one. Yeah. Uh, which is now at the Rock and Roll Hall oh, of Fame. Yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. How cool. Outside the Janice Joplin exhibit. Yeah. And good old Janice. I only met her once and she was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> walking around with her whiskey so anyway uh we recreated that bus it took us three years and they made us a documentary film about it which is on hbo max right now um called the woodstock bus oh, cool. if you want to check it out yeah and that sidetracked the book you know i kept trying in between taking pictures of the bus i didn't have a whole lot to do with it but in between taking pictures of the book i'd run back over here and start you know trying to process the book as you do you know you start with 9,000 pages and you, you cut it back and you cut it back and you cut it back. Uh, try to make it sound like it's flowing, you know, that whole business. It's, um, you know, writing the book is not the hard part. Editing is the hard part, you know, mm -hmm. making it making it so that it's something that people will want to read and make sense. Now, can I mention something? Please. Okay, when I first saw the movie in this little theater, of course, I thought the Beatles wrote it and all that. I could see that there were multiple levels of meaning. There were at least two to three other meanings in what, and, and now other guys that have been now looking into this know this. They have much, uh, they really got deeply into how many other meanings there are within it. Was it intentional or not? That's something else. However, it, when, when I finally realized 
that, God, what geniuses these guys are. I have got to find out more about them. I was on the wrong track uh, because obviously they didn't care. They were not that deeply involved in this film. They were not involved at all mm -hmm. after a while. Realizing that, and that's the reason why at that time, that's the reason I really fell in love with them intellectually at that time. I was, there were, I don't want to hurt your feelings or anything, but I wasn't a big Beatle fan for a while. It was Sergeant Peppers that made all the difference to me all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because at the same time I was paying attention to this, I had relationships with some other people like Jimi Hendrix and, and knowing full well what he saw in symbols and that consciousness. I mean, Jim, Jimmy was way ahead of most people. Most people, most guys that ever did stories about him didn't pay attention to his consciousness. You know, they got all hung up over all of his women and all the drugs and all the other kind of stuff. But beyond that, he was very smart. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first people that came to me when I was going to do record album covers. And so I was up in New York and, and they told me, hey, Jimmy wants to check it out and see if you can do his uh, album cover. Paid $100. Forget it. But we, we bonded at that time when he saw my drawings, which showed a pyramid and an eye in a triangle. And I had no idea that he was a student of the same symbolism. So that's how we bonded. That's how we got together. Was We were both, both wanting to know what was the meaning of the symbol on the back of the Great Seal of the United States. Uh, uh, and, and of course... Was that meaning also deep enough to bring people together? Because that's what I believe the Beatles have done. Mm -hmm. That's the key. I also, I may not like all of their stuff, but, but they sure as hell have united people. And that's what this world needs now. I'm sorry for taking so long. And that's why we're such proponents of this film. It, right. It's a feel-good film. Our book, I hope, is a feel-good book about a feel-good movie that teaches you that not just love and music magic, it's a little combination of both. That's their secret weapon. Because it's not just music that vanquishes the Blue Meanies. If you notice at the beginning of the movie, mm -hmm. and I like to say at the beginning of all interviews, if you haven't seen the movie lately, go watch it now. You know, Put this on pause, come back later. It will make a lot more sense to you if you've seen the movie more recently. At the beginning of the movie, they're playing music, you know? They have a little band in the park, and they still get attacked. But when the Beatles come, it's their their unique blend of love, music, magic, that is their actual secret weapon. Um, but then they don't overcome or kill their enemies. They turn them into friends. And that right. is the best lesson of all, right? Yeah. The end of the movie is the most, it's transformational. And that is what we all need to learn. You know, we, we don't need no more war. We just need to make friends with our enemies, turn them into friends, you know, turn them into the blue bird of happiness. It sounds idealistic, but we need things to aspire to. And the Beatles, if nothing else, are going to give that in their songs. And I think this, this film was made in, in, the history of the film is a, is a movie in itself. But the film, as it stands today, I think here we are 50 years later talking about it. It's, it's got amazing. a lasting power. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because it, it talks to us on this level, like like other classics do, like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. They all follow the same sort of mythological pattern that resonates with a, a deeper part of our, our psyche. So that's why we're so fascinated with the Yellow Submarine that we've two books about it. 
No, that's absolutely incredible. And, you know, a movie that I've seen, you know, I couldn't tell you how many times, I don't know that I've ever looked beyond like the surface level of like the message of just like love that they give at the end. Um, and God, there's so much more that I want to like dive in and explore now. That's super, super cool. Um, and, you know, and I, I think a lot of films also, as you mentioned this now, I think a lot of films and a lot of different forms of art seem to have more deeper meanings under the surface than than people originally will grasp. Do you think that's something that maybe is part of the influence of Yellow Submarine beyond just like the merchandising of the film and the cartoon characters and like everything being so cute and fun? Uh, I feel like, like that's like the bigger legacy maybe of the film is, you know, in addition to love and, and, and togetherness and unity, but also maybe kind of the ability to put more than just the surface message into a film or into a piece of art. You hit it right on the head. Awesome. <laughs> did, because that's what I think my favorite Beatle is, was, uh, George. Um, this man really did meditate. This man did go in the higher consciousness and he lived it. The other guys, yes, they got into it a bit, but, but um, didn't go anywhere near as deep as this man. Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love with him then. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think he was treated well, especially in the beginning of that re- their relationship. Um, and that really angered me. So I had a bias inside of me every time I saw him being put down and shoved aside because that should not have been a Beatle thing. Uh, I think that was wrong because mm-hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, there are certain parts within the film that certain things are pointed out about them, such as the only person that cared about uh, the nowhere man, the nowhere man uh, was Ringo. And uh, Ringo, you know, he was... Uh, put in several bad situations going through this process. But Inga, he was he he is a symbol of its growth and his growing. Um for him to be able to understand that this other being has higher consciousness and how to get to it. That's but again I'm going back to George. George not only saw it, did it well. Yeah. As, and we were just listening to his wife the other day, just yesterday, saying, ah. you know, around his death and everything like that. He was looking forward to moving on. Mm-hmm. Well, he was planning all his life for his death, as we all That's should right. be. Right. We were just watching Martin Scorsese documentary. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen it already. I have never seen it before. Yeah. And that with Olivia was really wow. That was wild. Yes. Listening was. to that. Yeah. But we, I have to point out that the every single one of the people who worked on the film that we interviewed said they did not intentionally put in hidden meanings. This is all interpreted, interpreted by us, but not just us. We have included in the book, a lot of other people that we've been in touch with who have gone even deeper than we have, if you can believe it into interpreting the symbolism and the meanings in the various scenes. But that's with any great work of art. You're going to find that the viewers are going to bring their own interpretation to it, as we do with the Beatles songs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've interpreted them up the wazoo, and they didn't mean most of the things <laughs> that we mean. And, uh, you know, they 
would have laughed at us if they, you know, when they did know that we were interpreting them. We have some quotes in the book from John Lennon saying, it's just a bunch of words. It's just a bunch of noise. I just threw them together. It had no meaning, but people are insisting it has meaning. So, okay, more power to them. We started a whole podcast about it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I just want to make that clear that the people who made the film did not do any of this intentionally. They didn't have time. Right. They had 11 months to create a film that should have taken four years. To do a, a normal animated feature-length film, Disney would have taken four years. Mm-hmm. But they made the the date for the premiere the date that they signed the contract. So, you know, they didn't want the Beatles to fade in popularity. You never know when they're going to... crazy to think that with hindsight, but, you know, you never know. Back then, you're, you're taking the gamble that 11 months later, they're still going to be popular enough to sell this film. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <laughs> it worked out for them, though. <laughs> Yeah, but it worked out for them, and um, as a result, they didn't have enough money. You know, they ended the the poor little studio that they hired to uh, do it in in London ended up having to put up a lot of their own cash to to finish yeah. the film. It went ten years, and mm-hmm. almost went bankrupt. Ten years. Yeah. And mm. uh, the, the Beatles didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was the first thing that really broke my heart when yes. we started interviewing people oh, was that the Beatles didn't want to have anything to do with the film. I'm like, really? Oh, I thought they were all involved in it. Yeah. But no, uh, not only that, they were giving them the throwaway songs, which is pretty common knowledge now. Yeah. Uh, but that was, a, you know, they were involved in so many things. And this was a spinoff of the cartoon series, as Bob said, which was done by some very brash Americans that they did not like. So they figured it would be the same thing, cranked out like a weekly schedule, like they had even less time to produce those poor TV cartoons. And they did a pretty good job for considering what they had to work with. Oh, for sure. Uh, But the artists that were doing that, it's the same people, more or less, a lot more of them. You know, they hired people from around the world, but it's a lot of the same people worked on the TV cartoons that worked on the film. And uh, the director of the film, George Dunning in particular, a very quiet, mild-mannered Canadian fellow. Mild-mannered said no we are not going to do a slapdash you know uh slapstick kind of cartoon for 90 minutes and i don't want my reputation to go down in history like that because it's <laughs> a lot more remembered yeah. and so they searched for this avant-garde designer they finally found in heinz edelman and then they got into trouble trying to find the right script and they just kept getting weirder and weirder and weirder and chewing up all this time until there was no script until heinz and Sadelman said, he, he said he was given a script that included a scene with um, Davy Jones Locker and a bevy of mermaids. And he, he, he told Bob, I've never drawn a mermaid in my life and I am never going to draw one. And he started drawing monsters. And yep. that's how the Sea of Monsters was yeah. born because he loves mm-hmm. monsters. And uh, so they, um, they developed the screenplay overnight with a bottle of whiskey. They stayed up one night and uh, he and Bob Balser, one of the co-directors of animation, and their wives and a bottle of whiskey and they they knocked out the basic storyline of the attack and the the resolution um that way and then they filled it in with the scripted little bits of script that came from eric siegel little bits of script that came from roger mcgoff and some was ad-libbed by the voice actors that did the thing i mean as i say it's amazing that it holds together and and seems to make sense yeah. <laughs> if you think <laughs> well i think the most important thing in about our book the second book is that we now know what a family these artists were because they were on another level altogether. They were certainly in the higher consciousness because that's what artists do. You know, if you're in your studio, 
for years and years and years, and you're in the quiet and you're listening to whether it's Dylan or it's uh, well, Beethoven. Beethoven or any of my favorites, um, then something happens to you in your relationship to your colors, your hands and everything else. You enter another dimension. And most people will get kind of upset about that, but it opens you up to your inner self, which is much smarter than your our outer self. Our physical world is a much dumber area. As a matter of fact, what it really, the physical world is more or less about, um, what would you call it? The material world? Yeah. I don't know where you're headed with that. Sorry. Oh, uh, <laughs> Basic, the basics of life, the foundations of things, and and that what when you move into higher dimensions, you can see the meanings of things, and that's what eventually evolves out of these great people like Heinz Edelman, and uh, you're going to have a great time reading this, because of the kindness of these people and what they were really like, and the Beatles didn't know anything about it, which was a damn shame. Yeah, because I. I think it really could have rubbed off to them in a, in a, in a better way. Well, I think they regretted it when they came along yeah. at the end and saw how good it actually was. They they kind of wish they had had more involvement yeah. in it, but it would have slowed them down even further, sure. you know, getting them in the studio to do the voices and, and whatnot. They were busy in India for half the time when they were busy making the film, and, and they were working on Magical Mystery Tour. So I think there was a bit of a, a competition, right. you know. <laughs> working on our movie to help you with your movie um <laughs> what bob was saying i want to second that the especially in this second book when we interviewed the younger people it's the best year of their lives this comes through over and over again from all these people they had such a good time i mean if you can imagine some of them were as young as 17 but they were mostly in their early 20s um, and you're a big fan of the Beatles already. You're living in swinging London, in the heart of swinging London, in Soho, where everything is changing and everything is colorful and short skirts and long hair and beautiful people everywhere. And it was such an experimental thing. And all of a sudden, here's what you're given to do, work on a film about the Beatles and listen to Beatles music all day long. They were in heaven and they had such a good time. It was hard work, no doubt about it. The first volume, as I say, with the older group, you hear a lot of, oh, it was hard, it was hard, you know, and Heinz Edelman in particular took a big toll off his health. Lost his, most Almost his lost his eyes, his yeah, and, um, because he worked himself so hard. He worked harder than anybody. He would stay late. The, most people would go off to the pub, you know, they the Dog and Duck pub is, is notorious. That's where they hung out during the day, long lunch hours. <laughs> Three hours. <laughs> Come back with their wine and drink wine and play <laughs> records. Having a great time. Um, oh. And Heinz would never go. And he would stay later. He'd stay out. He'd stay at night and creep around and correct everybody's drawings. He was just such a perfectionist. Uh, it took a real. It took a long time. And then after he was done, he didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. He's like, "Don't ask me about." Everybody always asked him about the Beatles, mm -hmm. and it was just a year of his life. It was supposed to be a month or two. Right. And his contract said four months or something. <laughs> two months. Two months. Two months. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, it was kind of irritating and he was in his mid thirties and he had his whole career ahead of him and anytime he'd have an opening of a show. So how was it like to meet the Beatles, right. you know, over. <laughs> so it took a long time and it was a good thing that Dr. Bob was able to bond with him to convince him to talk to us in the first place. Yes. He did not want to talk mm -hmm. about this. Really? He didn't want to get, yeah, because he, he stated over and over again, I've had it with this. I don't want anything to do with it. 
because of the way he was treated uh, by people like um, Al Brodax. Mm-hmm. God rest when, when you read our book, you'll, you'll see the kind of person he really is because we open it up real deep into what kind of a person he was and the things that he made up. It's just like I think it was, what is the thing we're going to talk about later on? Uh, well, it'll come up in the only oh, nor- Northern Songs yes, conversation. Yes, because he, yeah. Okay, well, he, he, he inserted himself in that history, too. Ah, yeah. well, I'm curious to know about that then. Um, before we back into the song, I do want to ask, I know, Bob, you mentioned that you weren't really a Beatles fan until Sgt. Pepper. Um, is, is Was that kind of when you first, when they first entered your, your world in general? Do you remember the first time you heard the Beatles? And Laura, I want to throw the same question to you as well after that. No, it was and from the very beginning. Um, I, I liked the way they looked and all that, but I didn't trust them. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it was uh, it was so fast. Everything was going so fast all of a sudden. And, and, <clears throat> and to see uh, them on television in that multiple times and on that level meant to me that, boy, this these guys are really here for other reasons. I don't necessarily think like other people when it comes to that. I think of what is the reason? Like, why are we talking about this? Why are you asking us to talk about this? Have we ever known each other before? I don't think you'd be bumping the people by mistake. I think we've known each other before. Mm. You're going to say bullshit. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> Okay, but I, I, you know, I just feel the kind of energy that you guys carry with you. It, it's it's unification, and all of us, especially myself and my family, are involved with trying to unite people. This past election almost screwed us totally. We almost lost our country, and we, we would have literally lost it. Uh, yeah. Sure. So, did you have a Pepper moment, like people talk about when you heard it? I would like to say I would not say bullshit. I believe you. I believe in it. I think that there's lots of reasons for things that happen. I, you know, if 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 I found out that reincarnation was real, I'd be like, okay, cool, yeah, that sounds amazing. Like, I wonder what my previous incarnations were. Like, I'm completely fascinated by that stuff, and I don't rule it out. <laughs> yeah, but you can find out. You can find out. But what are the things that you're interested in today? usually and from other lifetimes mm. they are picking up where you left off before and other lessons that you're trying to learn mm-hmm. uh, which is how to treat people it's mm-hmm. it's the the key to everything and this kind of love is much more powerful than and the beatles of course we're all on top of that and we all know that for a good reason because love is perhaps the most important con element of togetherness that we have in the world because it probably saves other people's lives just because you love them you love etc and you're willing to help and assert Mm -hmm. and especially serve other situations uh i don't know i'm a broken record here but i mean no i (laughs) love it i think that that's so great like i mean isn't that what we should be doing is like to be here to just like care for the people around us, like your community, your the city you live in, the world, like just general caring for other people. 
it's challenging for some people, <laughs> but to me, that makes total sense. Like I'm totally with you. Yeah. But, and, but more or less, we'll all grow into that because as you get older, I'm an old man now, almost 80. Uh, and you're so lucky to be 40. My gosh. You got <laughs> other, no, this is, how old are you lady? I'm 40. <laughs> Jesus, this is terrific. That's terrific for the, you to know this kind of information at that age, I didn't know it until 60, just some, somewhere around like that. You sell yourself short. Well, maybe. I'm yeah, I'm not buying that short. either. I feel like you were on board this train well before 60. I'm not buying that. <laughs> he was a pretty wise young Dr. Bob. Um, I was curious, though, if you had a Sergeant Pepper moment. Everybody talks about the first time they heard it and their minds were blown. Do you remember anything like that? Only that I saw three different meanings to everything they were doing, and that that's shocking. And then as we found out, other people have done deeper research into this that can show you how. There are more than three, four, or five levels of it. Wow, we, I mean, this is thrilling to me. It's a whole internal thing. And as you're involved with internal things, that also teaches you how to work with others on that level, rather have, in, instead of having everything to be out there, it can be inside. And that's what I was looking for, that kind of peace, because that's what you help others. Automatically, you feel good. And that but that's not why you help people to feel good. But it's true. It's, yeah. it's rules and regulations 506 of the penal code. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to happen to you if you do these things and, and, and bring people together. We've got to. Yeah, because we're I'm going to say something that. You, I'm sure you're tired of hearing about climate change, but we're up against it this time. We have done too much. It is going to be horrible for our children. We already knew that before, but now, my gosh, uh, water problems galore. Mm -hmm. uh, without water, it's over. You know, and and water, we all, we always use water like it's nothing. Right, for sure. Water was hardly no big price except for now now you're beginning to find out how much water can cost but water really is more or less like i think it was there was something about that i was i was trying to remember it was oh and these are all issues that the beatles have talked about mm -hmm. on their own for yes. years for years they've yes. talked about the importance of the environment uh you know Correct. paul has done going back to the early 90s was i think his tour was there was a tour that was tied in with um i forget what the what the cause was uh it wasn't greenpeace it was it was another ecological cause and i can't remember the name of it but they've been on that same message for you know going back to the 60s when you know i mean just the whole time yeah. yeah, they've all been impressive in their post-celebrity career and doing positive, meaningful action for everybody. Yeah, for sure. Fighting the cows, I, I think. Sir yeah, Paul the fighting, was especially Sir Paul on that, God bless that Made guy. sure they got and, outlawed in the UK. Yes, yes. Uh, this is what Sir George and I and you, we used, to, we used to talk about all the time. Sir George Martin, that is. Sir George Martin, sorry. <laughs> oh, no big um, deal. <laughs> oh, you know, George. Yeah, actually, another bonded with Dr. Bob. He wrote the introduction to our volume one. He was uh, very helpful in interviewing us in, for that book. That's amazing. Gave us a couple of scoops on the anthology at that time. It was around the same time. Wow. Extraordinary goal, Sir George. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. 
And Laura, what about you? What was your first Beatles moment? When did they first enter the scene for you? Well, I was born in 65. And I remember I, I got a stepsister who was 17 when I was seven years old. And we inherited her Beatles albums. I remember one called something like um, the songs and pictures of the fabulous Beatles. I think it was a bootleg, but she'd already written in, you know, I love Paul. <laughs> my, my sister and I followed suit, you know, I love Ringo. I love George. And we wrote all over the albums. Um, so I remember those albums, but then in high school, I joined, um, I was more, you know, back then I was more a fan of the monkeys. I have to say, I don't, rem I don't remember seeing, <laughs> I'm with you. seeing the Beatles cartoon, frankly. Um, but the monkeys and the Partridge family and the Archies, that's, that's what we were all about in, in our youngster days. Um, but I do remember those albums and thinking that Paul was so cute. Um, but then in high school, I joined one of those record of the month clubs uh, back when there was only records to listen to. <laughs> and I got the red album and the blue album and I subscribed to Rolling Stone magazine because I felt I needed to educate myself on rock and roll. And I listened to that blue album over and over and over again. So that was more or less my introduction to the Beatles yeah. in um, self-training and inheriting my sister's albums fantastic i love it y'all this is so fan this is so fun and interesting thank you i'm super excited i can't wait to read the book i know i just got them like a week ago and this week has been super crazy but i cannot wait to dive in because this sounds so fun so thank you all for sending those over why don't we go ahead and shift gears and talk about this week's song shall we all right all right so coming in this week at number 158 is only a northern song of a band can be really a confusing and convoluted world uh, throughout uh, throughout history arguments over who did what or who wrote, who wrote what who owns what uh, this has caused numerous disagreements hurt feelings tensions and squabbles and the Beatles of course are no different in this respect so a little backstory now when the Beatles signed with music publisher Dick James in 1963 Dick James formed a company to handle the Beatles song catalog which at this point was almost a hundred percent Lennon McCartney songs now, between the four Beatles, John and Paul owned the majority, a combined 30%, with Ringo and George each getting 0.8% ownership. Yes. The remainder of the company was owned by Dick James and his partner, as well as Brian Epstein. Now, the company was called Northern Songs, and they also uh, owned and controlled any future songs written by George and Ringo at that 0.8%. 
1965, the company was traded on the London Stock Exchange to ease the financial burden on everybody involved. So as you may have realized in this quick history lesson, by 1965, as George is finally actually emerging as a songwriter, not only are John and Paul making more money from his songs than he is, but yeah. so is Brian, Dick James, and now the public who've purchased the 1.17 million shares of stock in Northern Songs. So in early 1967, as the band are working on Sgt. Pepper, George Harrison, who's just spent the last few months in India studying sitar with Ravi Shankar and losing interest in Beatling and the trappings of the last few years, he now has to provide a couple of songs for this new album. Uh, so with his disinterest seemingly at the forefront, he offers up only a Northern song, an, only driven, er, an organ-driven guitarless song filled with discordant and unsettling melodies, biting lyrics about how it doesn't really matter what he submits because he's still going to be robbed when the pie is cut up. Uh, so over February 13th and 14th, the band set about working on the song, going through nine takes to achieve a backing track with George on organ, Paul on bass, and Ringo on drums. Now, by all accounts, John was not present for this. And also, on all accounts, uh, there was not a lot of affection for the track from the word go. George Martin is on record saying that this was his least favorite of George's songs, and engineer Jeff Emmerich recalls that even the Beatles themselves seem to not be overly enthused about the track. Uh, following some vocal overdubs on the 14th, the unfinished song was put aside and would eventually be left off of Sgt. Pepper in favor of the track George would bring later in the session Within You Without You. Now, also happening during the sessions for Sgt. Pepper were early production meetings for the Yellow Submarine film. Uh, so once work uh, was wrapped on Sgt. Pepper, before it was even released, the band knew that they were expected, produ expected to produce a handful of new songs for the film. As such, they pulled only a northern song back off the shelf. Now, on April 20th of 67, the band set about sprinkling some psychedelic magic on the track uh, with John in tow adding Mellotron, random piano, and glockenspiel. They also added percussion, timpani, squealing trumpets, a new bass part from Paul, and lead vocals from George, and the band end up with a suitably trippy song that would work well in the multicolor psychedelic world of Yellow Submarine. The song is featured, of course, in the 1968 film, in an especially trippy section involving an oscilloscope, which I'm sure we will discuss in a little bit more detail. Um, it was also featured on the accompanying soundtrack release in 1969, was never played live by the band, obviously, or by George or any other solo Beatle. So, why do I have only a northern song at 158? So I think George's 1967 period is really interesting because here he basically abandons the guitar for songwriting purely in favor of the organ. Now, the Eastern music influence on him here is really strong because there's a lot of just one-note drone happening uh, this year, whether it's on this song or Within You Without You or Blue Jay Way. Um, there's a lot of really cool things happening in the track, also musically and sonically. I think Ringo's drums sound fantastic in this song. Um, now, there's a definite unease and tension that kind of exists throughout the song that I think is kind of partially due to the dissonance in the chords and melody, but also the use of the organ in the same way that it creates that kind of dark tension uh, that we talked about a few episodes back in Your Mother Should Know. There's something kind of sinister about the feel of the song that's always made me kind of hesitant with it. Um, I think there's also an extent to where they're using so many tricks and sounds and effects on the track to kind of add a shine that maybe distracts the listener from a lack of weight in the song itself. Now, the Beatles were nothing if not brilliant at capturing universal truths in song or creating worlds in which you could immerse yourself. But a song about complaining about a publishing deal doesn't really fit the bill of something that everybody's going to latch on to. Um, 
I also think the lack of weight in the song prevents it from ever really taking off. It just kind of feels flat throughout on its own. Although it is, I do think it's an enjoyable song. It kind of just exists. It never really goes anywhere. Um, where it does succeed, though, I believe, is as the companion to the footage in the Yellow Submarine film. Um, as the animation style changes to like a distinctly non-cartoonish version of their faces, and it's constantly pulsing and changing colors uh, in increasingly fast ways while this oscilloscope moves throughout the song, that scene is actually kind of dark and really seems to match the distance of the song. It's always kind of seemed to me to be like the darker side of the psychedelic experience, like what I envision like a bad trip would be like. Uh, so all in all, it's not a song I come back to often, uh, but when I do, I never skip it. And there's always something interesting that I try to like pick up on each time I listen to it. Uh, I think it's more fun to listen to to see what you can pick out in, in, in the track than it actually maybe is as a song. So that's my opinion on it. Uh, Bob, Laura, I throw it over to you. What do y'all think about Only a Northern Song? I'm biased because I know how, uh, how um, George felt about it. I know how he was treated to cry here and i mean i i did cry when i saw how he was treated especially my thinking that he was perhaps in advance especially in the years that he had to be an underdog within the beatles that he had come come to his own and even maybe even excuse me but surpassing what the other beatles have were doing I've had other people mention to me that there might have been some kind of jealousy on George all of a sudden blossoming and being all together himself. And that, you know, we all know that he felt like he wanted to leave the Beatles at a certain time. um, And uh, I'm glad he he, he didn't, but it came mighty close. And uh, but then as we found out why, uh, he was not given that kind of money. Uh, it was just wrong. And I feel, I'm sorry, but I get embarrassed by that kind of stuff. And I can't, I can't support the other side saying, you shouldn't have this. Mm-hmm. I mean, they should have known better. And there are, certain, there are certain things within the Yellow Submarine that also point certain kind of things out about the meanness uh, and, the, and the short thinking about things. Uh, that that fortunately were straightened out of it within the film. What do you think? Well, I'm biased towards the song because I can't separate it from the film. Mm. I, I know it only really from the film and the film soundtrack. So um, again, I'm biased towards the film soundtrack because of the film. I know it's usually the, the lowest favorite, the least favorite album, if anybody would name it, uh, of, the, of the 11 albums or so. Um, but I'm biased towards it because of the film. So in, in, in our book, we analyze it in terms of its symbolic meaning. And it is uh, the submarine has just traveled out of the sea of time where they experience time and time bending and time warping and all kinds of exploration of the quantum field of time. And then they move into this sea of science, as they call it where they experience space and is examined space in the same way that they're just experiencing time in the the previous one. So uh, we talk about how everything is vibration. Fundamentally, everything is vibrating. All material matter has got a vibration to it. And that's what this depiction of that song is showing us, you know, with the oscilloscope, which indeed is probably the first time an electronics effects was used in a film. 
the actual oscilloscope of the of the song is is shown there. And I don't think that it had ever been done before. I think that's the first. Um, and so I, I I like this song because of that and the fact that the the dissonance that comes up in the middle is reflected in the ears get enlarged, you know, and they start flapping around. Um, one of the animators that we interview says that there's a mistake in the film. If you watch it carefully enough, one of Ringo's ears is off. It wobbles a little. He's so embarrassed every time he sees it. See, I don't see it, but maybe if you went frame by frame, if you're looking to pick something new out, that would be something to look for. How cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's um, the other thing that I, I want to talk about in terms of the, the film and the song are the myth that got started by our friend Al Brodax, the, mm. the brash producer of the film and the cartoons, because he was, as they say, a very creative inventor of anecdotes. He just spewed stories, you know, no, no relationship to facts. And for the longest time, he was the only one talking about Yellow Submarine. He was the only American. He was the easiest to reach. So before Bob started talking, he was the only one telling stories. So it's in the Wikipedia article, even. It talks about how Al Brodax tells this wonderfully endearing anecdote about how they needed the fourth song. They needed the fourth song. They, they needed that fourth contractually obligated fourth song. And George said, well, I'll write it for you. And then he wrote this song in Nothing Flat. And, and Brodax helped him title it by looking at the only the Northern Song Publishing. Complete fabrication, right? <laughs> Not only that, but, you know, as Mark Lewison points out, and as you just stated, only another song was written well before the movie was even started. Yeah. Um, but I think because Brodex writes all this in his memoir as well, I mean, it's complete BS. I think he's mixing it up with what happened with Hey Bulldog. Because if you think about it, the other three songs that they gave to the film were basically already written. They were throwaway songs, as they say. Hey Bulldog is the only one that was written specifically for the film. And as we make an argument, if you listen carefully to the lyrics of Hey Bulldog, you can interpret them any way you like. But an obviously provoked John Lennon is writing a song about a person he does not like, Al Brodex. I think that song is about Al Brodex. You think special, you think you know me, but you haven't got a clue, clue, right? That says what John Lennon felt about Al Brodex. And I think Brodex either mixed it up purposely or just in his mind, that probably was written quickly, you know, and, and he did have to provoke him to write it because it, it was like February, I think, when they wrote Hey Bulldog, and that mm -hmm. was really close to the end of the production of the film. So um, whatever you read out there that Al Brodex says, take it with a big grain of salt. <laughs> you, know, you, ra you raised a really good point, Bob, where you mentioned, you know, the idea of some possible internal jealousies at George really starting to blossom as a writer. Yes. Because when you think, you know, he writes this in 67 and in 66, he's just had three songs on Revolver for the first time, including the leadoff track, which, you know, to go from being, you know, a quote unquote junior Beatle to now you've got the first track on the new record. You know, that's he's showing, you know, big leaps and bounds here um, at the same time. You know, even though John is writing things like. Tomorrow Never Knows in 66, and then in 60, you know, or late, late 66, early 67, Strawberry Fields, uh, Lucy the Sky with Diamonds, things like that. He's starting to kind of struggle a little bit. Um, the quantity is not necessarily there. And John, as, as we kind of know now, is always looking for the next thing to be the answer. The next you know, <laughs> person he can 
put all of his faith in the next, you know, I hesitate to say guru because they're not there yet in 67, but he's looking for the next guru to put all of his faith in to like cure all of his, all of his, you know, ales. And George has all of a sudden found things that make him happy that are mm-hmm. not beetle reliant. So, yeah. and he's, he's writing more, he's confident. He's expressing to everyone that maybe he doesn't need to be a beetle. He might not okay. want to be a beetle. And I think that, I think you're right on. I think that kind of terrifies some of the other guys. And then when you think that John's not even on this track when they record it, you know, the first couple of days, uh, when he's there for everything else they're doing at this point, um, I think that's a really interesting train of thought. It really, that made me go, hmm. Uh, because like you said, like this is a song coming from a place of anger and frustration on George's part too, because he knows he's gotten the raw deal from, you know, for the last four years. Yeah, he could prove it. Yeah. He could prove it. It wasn't it wasn't a maybe wrong wrong. He could prove it. And and you know, being a sensitive soul, you can imagine how uh that must really you must really feel when you realize that you are caught in a situation. If you open your mouth, you're gonna hurt a group that you don't wanna hurt, so you can't. Mm-hmm. So you know, he he was a good man. Yeah. He really was a good for sure. Julia, how are you feeling about only only a northern song? Um, you know, today I learned that the song was named after the the publishing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought that the publishing was after the song. Ah. Yeah, okay. I just sort of assumed cuz I knew that the song existed and I knew that there was like a like I I, I don't really know. The, to- the, the time p- was not you weren't familiar with the time frame. Right. I, yeah. I didn't realize that the song was like a specific reference to a, a crappy deal. Um, <laughs> so that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it I, I understand the song a little bit better. I, I think like reading the lyrics, I'm like, okay, I, I see where you're coming uh, from. I get why you're mad because that's a really crummy deal. 0. 0.8%? 0.8%. <laughs> Like, why yeah. not just get, well, like, make it one? When you can, uh, <laughs> even if you think it's wild, because even if you think back to the first song George puts on a record that's his, uh, "Don't Bother Me," um, or the songs on on Help, uh, John and Paul get thirty percent of the publishing of the song that George wrote by himself. Mm-hmm. George gets point eight percent of his own song. Like, who has the time to do the math to figure out 0.8%? Like, come on. Accountants and lawyers and attorneys. Jeez. <laughs> Look, I've, I've dealt with them. You've seen me deal with them. You that's know how fair. it works. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just to split up 30%. And then for Brian and what was the other guy's name? Dick James. Dick. Well, Brian he's the publisher. Right. Of no fixed ability. Of no fixed ability. <laughs> I think he's... I think he's dead. I think he passed. I hope so. That guy was really. Yeah. He was a. He was a monster in a way. Mm-hmm. He can advantage and, and, and people. He could. You know how people admire people that know the Beatles. Okay. He took advantage of that all the time mm. with his position. And, and um, I thought it was downright mean. Oh yeah, but he, he's a, he's a money man. You mm-hmm. know that's what he's there for. Yeah. And and and, and uh, George is not the money man. 
Right. George, you know, he's, he's, uh, a, he's, he's a pure person from the standpoint of higher consciousness moving to his deliberate. It was not an accident. It, and it and it was something that he wanted to do and and he uh, almost died as we know and he would have planned that death you know when you get into higher consciousness you can do that i don't i'm not going to talk about that now but <laughs> but it's possible to do that well as far as the song goes i'm going to separate it from the movie because that's how i like to sort of digest the songs i like to just sort of talk about them on their own sure um, I'm I'm not a big fan of this one. It okay. sort of sits in the space of what's the new Mary Jane for me, of just sort of like being weird for the sake of being weird. If that sure. makes sense, like, like there's there's sort of like their experimental stuff, but it's some of it is still really good. Sure, and this just doesn't land in that lane for me. It's I don't know. I mean, I guess because there's like no, there's no like chorus. There's no like verse, chorus, verse. Kind, mm-hmm. You know, there's no like traditional structure to it. Or um, the the trumpet is very shrill. Yeah, like the effects feel maybe a little like forced was, to you. Yeah. Um, I think it was intentional. But, uh, and, and that's Paul, yeah. I believe, who yeah. is not a trumpeteer. If anybody <laughs> remembers last year when he... Uh, played trumpet on when the saints go marching in with preservation hall jazz band. Uh, everybody yep. in town was like, wait a minute. No, that is not how this goes, dude. And he's playing Louis Armstrong's trumpet. And the city of new Orleans was in a tizzy about that. I remember that <laughs> Very specifically. It's not great. But yeah, um, I, I see that. Like, yeah. And I think it's sort of like the, um, I don't I guess like the beat of it, sort of the tempo of mm-hmm. it is just is very like disjointed and I mean I it probably it matches with the visual in the movie really well, but just the song on its own, I don't know. We've passed up some stuff that I think is better <laughs> than this. Sure. As per usual. Per usual. <laughs> do do y'all know, can you exp- kind of explain a little bit how the visuals in the song were paired with this particular track? The visuals in the movie, I'm sorry, were paired with this track? I don't know. Well, it was uh, Charlie Jenkins' um, creation. He oh. was the, the special effects director. Yeah. And he's responsible for the Eleanor Rigby sequence with the mixed animation and live action effect. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do a lot more of that, but they didn't have enough money. Um, and he also did the opening title sequences, and he did the It's All Too Much at the end. So... It's sort of like a break from the traditional animation that uh, the characters that Heinz Edelman had created in the Pepperland and the Beatles. And for that, it's like, oh, that's nice. Something different to look at for a little break in the movie. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how they carved it up. It was just a matter of expediency, you know, they had different units working on different parts of the film. And since they didn't have a script at the beginning, they started with the songs, the ones that had been approved from Sgt. Pepper and that one. Um, and they put them into this travel sequence because they didn't have any idea what was happening. So they knew it was traveling from somewhere to somewhere else, but they didn't have the beginning of the film. They didn't have the end, but they had the travel. They knew they were going to animate the songs that they had to some kind of travel. So they started with Nowhere Man was one of the first songs they animated too. Um, the Nowhere Man character came from one of the first scripts. Um, 
but uh, the sea of science was given to Charlie Jenkins and he took Malcolm Draper was one of the animators that I mentioned before who had the, the ear going wrong that he's so embarrassed with. He, he did most of that on a, a Lucy graph, which is an old fashioned machine that they don't use anymore, which is uh, mirrors and dials, you know, it's like how to enlarge things and make them smaller. And you had to sit on like a bicycle seat and you're all hot and sweaty because you're in this cubicle and he had to do it for like three weeks. He said it was murder. He was sweating like you couldn't believe. Um, so, so wait, yeah. Are you saying that that's produced by, did you say, you said by, by a bicycle, right? I heard that correct? A bicycle seat, basically. They're sitting on a, like a perch, like a bicycle oh, okay, seat. Okay, okay, okay. Over this thing with mirrors and lights and you crank it up and you crank it down to, to, to whatever, to make it larger, make it smaller. Wow. Um, so he did a lot of that on on the Lucy, as they ended up calling that machine. As you can understand why. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so um, that was how it came about. It was Charlie Jenkins's vision. He had uh, very experimental ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went up to Liverpool for a couple of days and took all those pictures that we see in the beginning and in, in the Eleanor Rigby sequence. Oh wow! Uh, we some of those in the film because those contact sheets just came available. And uh, somebody in the Netherlands, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, somebody in the Netherlands has a, a, a magazine called Furor magazine, did this long, extensive article about the um, yellow submarine in Liverpool. And so he tracked out all these different places that Charlie took pictures of, identified them on the street maps. And so there's these wonderful maps. You could actually go to Liverpool and do a guided tour of, of yellow submarine, should yeah. you want to, huh. of what's left. That's- Actually, he recorded a lot that is gone now. That yeah. Liverpool doesn't exist anymore, sure. as you can imagine. So it's a nice archive of of the dying Liverpool of the late '60s. Wow, um, that's yeah, Charlie, extraordinary. Yes, we had they had several geniuses involved in this. Yeah, this project. I always that's assumed cool. that those were like old stock photos of you know just obviously a lot of Liverpool area things, but I had no idea they were all taken for it's that. Real that's really interesting. <laughs> People. The people in Level Eleanor Rigby are people who worked on the film. Did you know that? I did not know that. How cool. Every single one in Eleanor Rigby is somebody who worked on the film. Wow. Do you remember at the very end with the umbrellas? There's people on the on a roof with umbrellas. That's that's Heinz Edelman and George Dunning. <laughs> Rodax is there. You can see him clearly. He's smoking a pipe. Of course. Dave <laughs> Goodman, his henchman, is right behind him, all hunched up like that. He's the lady in the fishbowl, she's looking down in the fishbowl, and it swims by. That's Allison DeVere, the head of backgrounds. The guy with the goggles, uh, that's their, their gopher, basically, Brian Endel. He was their runner. That's like the oh, one and- that I always remember is the guy in the goggles for some reason. <laughs> and remember in the Sea of Time, at the end, there's all these bubbles going up, and there's that guy in the funny hat with the beard and the stopwatch, and they say, hello, governor. He was an... Um, he was one of the checkers in the, the final department where you had to, they had to run all the drawings through this final department, 250,000 some drawings. They had to just shape them back into the Heinz style. That was Ian Cowan. Very, very, very funny guy. Everybody remembers how witty he was. He and John Lennon really hit it off, as you can imagine. Um, at one of the screenings, they ended up under a table reading poetry to each other, drinking wine. <laughs> as, as you do. He was so he really dressed like that. He loved Victorian <laughs> clothes and they had this old Victorian bicycles. They would go on these huge bicycle rides with these, you know, the big wheel kind of things. So huh. the, the film is full of characters like that. And uh, Soho at the time, 
features into the film too. It had all kinds of weird people running around Soho. Eccentrics were just drawn to this area. You know, people pushing baby carriages around, dressed up like old King George, singing Beatles tunes, and you know, doing Dancing in the street streets. busters. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's their home. It was uh, as Heinz so. said uh, in in critiquing our first book. Heinz said the one character you left out was the city of London itself, Soho itself, because the weirdness, the everyday reality of the weirdness of that area, really played into what we produced. You know, it's sort of a time capsule, and yet they managed to make it timeless because mm -hmm. there's not a lot of specific references to anything in particular. The kinky boot beast is about as, as particular as they get since yeah. that was a fashion statement of the time people were wearing because they had the shorts were all, the skirts were suddenly so short they started wearing these long boots. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a, we, we write about that in the book, how people, what, what they were eating, what they were wearing and how they were, it's, it's a wonderful um, family, a tribe. They really felt like a, a tribe they were in this together and you know they're going to work all night if they have to um except when they had the, the takeover threat they almost didn't they almost didn't finish the film i i'll, I'll leave that for you to read about yes, later. Do the yeah. cliffhanger. <laughs> cliffhanger. <laughs> well let's uh let's come full circle so i've got only a northern song at number 158 out of 223 does this seem way off base if you were going to put all the beatles songs in your own ranking would it be right here in the middle? Would it be in your 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 top songs, your lower songs? What do you think? Lower for me. Yeah. I'm biased. You mean higher? Um, better? Better? Yeah. Lower lower number or below? Oh, higher. Call <laughs> <laughs> in the mind. Who's on first? You know? <laughs> in the mind. So you'd have it closer oh. to the end of the list, closer to, or to the beginning of the list, I guess, where we first started, at like number two twenty three. Yeah. Oh, do you have a, oh, you'd put it yeah, further down to the bottom. Got that list right here. This color-coded yeah. list that you made. Yep. You would put it higher in the list or lower down in the better. You would put. It, you would make it better. Yeah. Yeah. He would have voted better. I think it's about right, because uh, like Julia said, it is hard to listen to. I, I, I have a, I have my biases against uh, towards it because of the film, but mm -hmm. on its own, it it is a, a challenge. For so, sure. So I was pleased actually that you put it where it was. I was thinking it might be higher on the, a higher number nice so you think and, and you think you would have it maybe a little bit i think a little bit a little bit higher up in the list a little bit higher on the list like move it back a few a weeks few. back yeah <laughs> okay. yeah there's some stuff that i prefer christmas time is here again <laughs> <laughs> fair enough right. well friends before yeah. we before we part ways can we do a few rapid fire questions sure mm -hmm. all right so i'll throw them out just give me your first thought your favorite okay. Beatles song? Uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, love it. <laughs> Expecting that. Whatever I've heard just recently. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> I'm going to pick a favorite. When, when the COVID thing hit and uh, Bob started watching all these old VHSs, and he was watching this one series, Outtakes of the Anthology, and I was like, oh, that's my favorite song. And the next one goes, oh, no, that's my favorite song. <laughs> I swear, you know, throughout the day, something will be playing through my head. And I have to trace back. Now, what made me think of that song? Oh, okay. You know, I was emailing Jude Sutherland Kessler the other day about her podcast. She said, she said, and that's stuck in my head for days. So, because that's my favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I hear that. It's like. It... I am partial to Because, though. I just mm. love the harmonies in that, especially when the love came out and they stripped out all mm. the things. Gosh, and the message of that song. And, um. 
again, Yellow Submarine Bias all together now is is really one of my favorites. It's I love that simple. song. It's so fun. I love it. It's such a tune. It's like a Zen koan. You know, it's like yeah. before enlightenment, you have to chop wood, carry water. And after enlightenment, you chop wood, carry water. Yeah. Skip the rope, bail the trip. Paul did a good song. job. Yeah. He sure and did. I love it in the song. Taking it out of his dreams. Love that song. Like that. Uh, least favorite Beatles song. Is there one that you just always skip? Well, I'm going to go back to the same piece. So, you know, um, that is what we've been talking about in regards to, to us, uh, not Sir George. Uh, mm. So you don't have a, a least favorite? I don't have a least favorite. I don't, uh, I don't pay much attention to that. I, I'm biased and I want to focus on the things that I want. And it's all in the hands of uh, the situation of higher consciousness and George. You know, I think I probably, if George wasn't within the group, I think, I don't think I would have paid too much attention after a while. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, to know all the things he had to go through and yet come out on top and not become a braggart, not become a person who pushes people around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which he had to suffer for. But he probably knew his karma. You know, that was the most important aspect of it, his own karma. He knew what his karma was and he was working on getting better which i think he did in a massive way laura did you have a least favorite i don't know i'd have to pass on that i really don't <laughs> fair enough don't like any of them i love christmas time is here again I oh. do. <laughs> uh favorite beatles album album white white album mm -hmm. interesting i like it okay um i i think i'd go with rubber soul I, I discovered that as an adult, really, because as I said, I was raised on the Blue Album, so it was all the greatest hits. But um, back in the, in I, I used to listen to your vinyl of Rubber Soul as a, a sort of a little ritual after we did the radio show mm -hmm. um, on the typewriter. I'd type up all the scripts and I'd type up the cassette tape labels. <laughs> <laughs> and when it was all done, I'd put on Side One of Rubber Soul just to have a little celebration while I cleaned up. And I, and I discovered the word. I was really disappointed how low you, you ranked the word. Because when I heard that, I was like, wow, they did All You Need Is Love before. And nobody's ever heard this before. Well, you know, the Beatles will do that to you. You think you're the only one they're talking to. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I grew to love Rubber Soul by doing that over and over again after. It was my celebration dance. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, last one, your favorite memory associated with the Beatles. Favorite Beatle memory? Oh, okay. That's exactly what I was going to read to you. Oh, perfect. If I wanted to be accurate. This is the first time we've allowed this to be known. Okay, okay. okay. Nobody knows about this, but we're going to post it in a couple of months. Um, it has to do with um, Ringo. He stole my hat. <laughs> and I'll tell you how. Okay, I have a dear friend. His name is Stuart Zolotaro, who's photographed the Beatles and everybody else in the whole wide world. And uh, Stuart and I would go out and see the Beatles from now and now, every now and then. And and one time we were in Pennsylvania, and they were at a place that was just miserable. Ringo and the All Stars. Ringo and the All Stars, and and uh, they were doing well, but they, they were sweating to death. I mean, it was not the place you would expect to see the quality of, of this kind of thing. 
So um, we arranged for Ringo and his all-star band to play at the Meyerhoff Symphony Hall in Baltimore about 10 years ago. As Ringo said, it was the most posh uh, than any of the other venues that they ever used, which I was surprised. I mean, you know, I mean, it was, it's Meyerhoff is a fabulous place, but you know, it's the Meyerhoff Symphony is actually named for my wife's family. So that's why we had little, a lot of pull actually to, <laughs> to come in there because they, at first they didn't want to do it. Um, the whole audience, well, we, we sat in seats that were right up front, the front seats. And I have, was wearing a hat. It was a boater. You know, a boater is a straw hat with a black man like flat and all the other kind of thing. And um, I had come there eventually at that time, that, that show I was supposed to be giving a book, my book, book of the Yellow Submarine to Ringo. Well, Ringo, well, I'll put it this way. The Meyerhoff Symphony Hall is actually named for my wife's, as I said, and that's, that's the reason why I want to point out that uh, when we started singing A Little Help from Our Friends, the whole audience got on their feet at this time, as usual, and I was so excited that I took off my hat and threw it to him because he was pointing to me. He was pointing to me, and at first, I didn't. I kept saying to my friends who were around, what's, what's he pointing to me for? He said, they want your hat. <laughs> He could buy any hat in the world, you know. <laughs> I, you know, this is a—it was a great hat. It was like four hundred dollar hat kind of thing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I threw it up on the stage. It went right to him. It just floated right to him. He picked it up. He put it on. He ran around the stage, waving and <laughs> everything. Gave a little bow. Bowed to me. <laughs> all the other kind of stuff and everything like that. Uh, he ran backstage, and that was it. <laughs> I thought he was going to come back out and give me my hat back, but he didn't. <laughs> so, well, I, I, that was amazing to me. Uh, but then, a few days later, he posted a video of himself in his birthday message. And guess what? <gasps> Is he wearing the hat? <laughs> no. <laughs> He was wearing my hat. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. He really liked it that much. I thought that when he took it, that was like, ah, uh, uh, well, that's just, oh, when I get home, I'll throw this right. away or something like that. And that's why I wanted it back. I mean, it was a real <laughs> uh, But But there it was. And um, um, that's the story how Ringo stole your hat. That's how he stole my hat. <laughs> Oh my god. That's fantastic. I hope he still wears it. <laughs> I hope so too. That's so good. These guys have so many clothes. I mean, I doubt very much if you even would even remember that that he got another hat. Ringo, if so. you're listening, uh can we get proof of life for the hat, please? We we need a video with the hat. Please find the hat. I want to see it. Oh my goodness. That's, that's so amazing. That would, nice. that would be nice. I know. Tell them we'll give them a copy of uh, book two. Yeah. We'll make it a swap. It's an even swap. So he could find out what he really did and accomplished. <laughs> you know, it's key to this. I mean, in the film, he's a real darling in some, some parts, and other times he is a little creep. 
<laughs> but you know, uh, no wonder people would fall in, in love love with that. Mm -hmm. And and uh, the fact that you know he had a tough life. He, his his health was not too good. I, I'm, I'm sure it's a lot better now. But uh, in, at that time, I, I just felt so sorry for him, uh, having to go through the things that he did, and then being having to be pushed back, uh, and not. I always always uh, very concerned about it, that uh, he was going to be totally forgotten or pushed out of the way, mm -hmm. the way other other people would have. But you know, this has been really an interesting interview, and that's the reason why I wanted to read this to let you know first before it goes out oh uh, you're very kind oh thank you and it's and obviously you understand the soul of the beatles which is about bringing everyone together as corny as it sounds that love is all you need it is mm -hmm. love is the most powerful energy in the universe i'm not kidding I mean, if you get, if you were studying esoterica, you would have learned that a long time ago. That love is the key to everything. Well, I think Laura, okay. you said earlier, and the Laura, you said earlier, it might sound corny. I don't think that was the word that you used, but we we all should have. We need something to aspire to, mm -hmm. and that's it. You know. It's idealistic. That was the word you used. You said it might be idealistic, but we need something to aspire to. That's it. And the Beatles do it with a beat you can dance to. Yeah. That's not preaching. They make it, you have a good time. So your endorphins are flowing. Yeah. You know, when you start singing together, everybody's entrained. Your brain and your heart start to entrain. It's, it's wonderful. And when you're singing those kind of lyrics, magic happens. I love it. I love it. I love For it. Sure. Where can our listeners pick up a copy of It's All in the Mind? Thank you for asking. We have it on Amazon, but we have um, direct sales at yellowsubmarinebook.com, awesome. which is the best place to get it because you also get bonus prizes. Yes. And if you hear about it on this show, we will offer you very special bonus prizes, which um, it will be uniquely customized to you so if you come to yellowsubmarinebook.com we will find out what we can share with you from dr bob's enormous yellow submarine merchandise collection it's good propaganda we have hats, <laughs> hats toys uh, i we're not on video but you know plush toys action figures hot wheels but corgis you, but you might masks. have you might have all those on uh, everything that you can imagine so it depends on you know flat rate or, or priority depending on what they would might like but anyway uh, we do have it on Amazon, and we also recently published it with Ingram. So if you go to your independent booksellers and ask for it, they may be able to get it for you. They they can get it for you. Uh, it's just a matter of the demand. So mm -hmm. we're looking for that, and we love to support the independent bookstores. So if you have one that buys Beatles books, let us know or let them know that we're out here and that they can get it through Ingram. I love it. So you awesome. can get it through your independent bookstores, you can get it through Amazon, or at the website, which was yellowsubmarinebook.com. Mention right. you heard about it on Ranking the Beatles, and a sweet secret prize is coming yeah. your way. How cool is that? We got nothing yeah. but exclusives today. Exclusive prizes, <laughs> exclusive hat thieving stories. Uh, Ringo. This is so much fun. <laughs> well, Dr. Bob, Laura, thank you all so much for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure. We really, really appreciate you all coming on the show and spending some time with us. So thank you all for doing this. 
Likewise. Thank You're you. a joy to be with. Thank you. Before we wrap it up this week, I just want to throw in a quick addendum uh, to this episode. After we taped this, uh, Julia and I evacuated for Hurricane Ida. Um, I had planned on posting this episode uh, shortly after that time. Obviously, some things got moved around because we evacuated. Um, but I received a really nice email from Laura. And her and Dr. Bob wanted to send a care package to Julia and I. Uh, so when we got back home, we received this lovely package. Uh, with all sorts of yellow submarine goodies, which is incredibly kind. Uh, copies of autographed copies of both of their books, which are absolutely incredible. Um, and a really lovely letter, uh, which, I mean, is super caring and lovely and nice. Um, one thing that Dr. Bob did want to set straight was that he feels that he answered incorrectly as far as his favorite song. So I wanted to give a quick update on that. He did answer Sergeant Pepper. However, he says he was overly excited. What he meant to say was his favorite Beatles songs are actually George Solo songs uh, or Traveling Wilburys tunes. He listed Brainwashed, Heading for the Light, and The Devil's Been Busy in Your Backyard, uh, all of which he's used as opening theme songs for his radio shows over the years. Uh, also, uh, with a little help from my friends, which he named one of his murals after. And he's also used the Joe Cocker version as the opening theme on his song, on his uh, radio show as well. So, I just felt that I wanted to make that quick update on Dr. Bob's behalf and also say thank you to Dr. Bob and Laura for the incredibly gracious and lovely care package that meant so much to us to get something like that. Uh, so, let's wrap it up for the week. Here we go. How about that, y'all? Dr. Bob Hieronymus and Laura Cortner. Talking Yellow Submarine, I am ready to go rewatch that movie now. I feel like I've learned a lot more about it, and there's so much more that I think I have not even begun to pick up on. I feel like you should read the book first as well. I believe that is also a good idea. Yeah, maybe like read the book this weekend, well, and then we'll watch it. I'll read volume one, you read volume two, or opposites. Okay. Because we have both. And then now. we can cross-reference notes. Yeah, I love it. And then watch Yellow Submarine again. I'm so together. into this. I'm so into this. Um, <laughs> what a joy that was. That was so much fun. Um, friends, what do y'all think about Only a Northern Song coming in this week at number 158? Too high, too low, or is it just like Baby Bear's Porridge? Just right. I did it like a like a DJ. Or is it just like Baby Bear's Porridge? Just right. <laughs> um, also, what are your thoughts on Yellow Submarine? Let's talk Yellow Submarine. We haven't really done much off of that record yet if at all i don't think we have um yeah so let's talk yellow submarine in the comments on facebook at ranking the beatles on instagram at ranking the beatles and on twitter at ranking beatles yeah tell all your friends what we're doing over here at ranking the beatles if you're enjoying it uh be sure to leave us a review with as many stars as your provider will let you leave preferably five if that's the most you can give Yes, please. Yeah. Um, and be sure to pick up your copy of It's All in the Mind, Inside the Beatles' Yellow Submarine, Volume 2, wherever you can. The best place to get it, of course, yellowsubmarinebook.com. Tell them you heard about it from Rankin' the Beatles, and they're going to send you a sweet little, little present. A little nugget of joy. A little added bonus uh, value. I love it. Well, friends, this has been an absolute blast. I hope you've all enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back next week with another new episode. What you say, Julia? You want to come back and do it again next week? I guess. All right. Still got 157 more to go. So Thanks. we'll be here for a while. Anywho, y'all have a great week, and we'll holler at you next time. Until then, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This is Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all. <laughs>